Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. This episode is sponsored by the Imperial Museum of Modern Art, now on display, the Thrawn Collection, featuring the only surviving works of art from countless worlds. And welcome back, and thank you to the LGG Cantina Band, Lorem Ipsum and the Scriveners, and thank you to our sponsor. Kirk, I think we have an art museum today as our sponsor. Yep, uh, hopefully everybody's been visited that art museum. If you haven't, uh, you might want to go check it out. Yeah, and any other uh, worlds you need to visit and see the art before it disappears. Uh, I'm your host, Ben Siders. With me here is your other host, Kirk Damon. That's Kirk as in the Captain of the Enterprise, and not as in Russell. Not as in Russell or Warner. This is episode 10, and as you may have gathered from the intro, we're going to talk about art, specifically fan art. This question comes to us uh, from Mike S. on Facebook. Mike's an uh, old college buddy of mine. Uh, Mike asked this back in August and has been waiting patiently for three months for us to talk about it, so thank you, Mike. Uh, Two issues here. One, can you recreate art that somebody else has already made? And then two, can you create new art based on or inspired by existing materials uh, like, uh, you know, painting a favorite character from a book or something like that? I think it's worth pointing out in some sense, if you guys listened to the last episode, this is going to tie a little bit back into our last episode. It's kind of a variation on that theme. Because fan art in some sense is a little bit of a modification. I mean, there we were talking much more about modifying specific things that are out there. And this one we're talking about really sort of wholly created works, but these are wholly created works based upon something And some else. of the same rules are going to apply. I mean, there's an dr- argument these are derivative works, and there's yep. arguments for fair use, and there's arguments that in some cases what you're making is not infringing a copyright because what because the original material, that aspect is not copyrightable at all. So, yep. as you may have gathered, this is yet another copyright issue. Uh, we should coin an f- acronym for that, Y-A-C-I, yet another copyright issue. <laughs> then we start to sound like the internet. Yeah. Uh, so, a little background. On, there's probably a good topic to kind of dig in a little bit more into, into mechanically how copyright works. I think this is copyright's probably the IP that the average person is most familiar with. I'd say the, I mean, people are probably the most familiar with it. It's probably the one they understand the least, that's though, the too. Thing. But you probably mistakenly think you understand it the best. So, um, but I'll actually just to jump on that point real quick. There's actually was a legal article that just came out recently um, that interviewed people on sort of their general understanding of IP law. And one of the things that came out of it is the fact that they horribly misunderstand it um, and actually do a little better than random in answering IP law questions. Hopefully by now, having listened to nine of these episodes, you're a little better at it than the average person is. But it's worth noting that even though people may think they have a lot of understanding of copyright, that understanding may be flawed. Yeah, there's sort of a pervasive notion that copyright's about attribution rights. And although there is an aspect of that— Yeah, plagiarism. uh, There's an aspect of that. But, you know, plagiarism is is what we learn not to do in school, uh, whereas copyright— Copyright is about not, you know, not doing certain things with properties that don't belong to you. So, why do we even have this? Is a good question. So, you got to think, think back to prior to the invention of basically the printing press. There really was no such thing as a copyright because. You just didn't need it. Uh, expressive works, uh, such as they were, were basically books, and uh, at least they were, anything that was in permanent form. Yeah. I mean, you had plays, but those are all you know temporally limited. Yeah, and then you know books were laborious to produce without a press. It was all done by hand, mostly by by monks and religious scholars. Most people weren't literate anyway, so your audience was pretty small. There's just no reason to make them, and most of your literate people were part of universities, governments, or the church which at the time was all just the church. Yeah, in some respects, yes. Yeah, so it's, it's probably no coincidence that most surviving texts from that time are, are you know, I'm thinking like the medieval era, pre-printing press, mostly religious in nature. But the press changed all that because suddenly you could make copies of stuff relatively rapidly and inexpensively. 
Yeah, and I think that's a you know one of those things to sort of keep in mind is it, when the printing press as a technological change in many respects, dramatically altered something which its technology had nothing to do with. I mean, technologically, it's a press, it's a machine, but the ability to suddenly produce works and produce literature wor- literary works created two unique things, one of which it enabled you to reproduce existing works much more readily. So, you know, existing religious texts, stuff like that, simply became more common. Mm-hmm. The other thing it also allowed you to do is it allowed you to create works that were sort of less important, so to speak. And, and you know, you can say what you will about, you know, in conjunction with religious text and whether or not they're, you know, important to the world as a whole. But if you obviously take sort of the medieval era, religious texts were the important texts. Um, And that's the reason I think also a lot of them survived is because that's what was worth spending the effort to create. When you suddenly get rid of that barrier to entry, you can create works that aren't. Yeah, and it's interesting. Well, so I have an English degree, and I took a, a course on medieval literature and a course on Renaissance literature. Medieval literature, almost without exception, is either about religious figures or written by religious figures. Yep. When you get to the Renaissance— Now, part of that's the literacy issue. Part of that is. But then you get to the Renaissance, and setting aside that we have the Enlightenment kind of around the same time, uh, you see a, a massive broadening in the scope of what is written. You know, How many works of Shakespeare are there that have survived? Yep. Dozens and dozens and dozens. How many works of any author pre-Renaissance— have survived. I mean, most people wrote a couple of things, maybe. I can't think of anything. Yeah. And a lot of it was also copying. I mean, that was the thing is it's, you know, the vast majority of texts needed to be copied yeah, because they're texts destroyed. Down, they're destroyed. Yeah, they're destroyed, lost in wars, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of uh, interesting historical um, aspects of that. But, you know, when, when the printing press was first uh, kind of rolled out, the Crown controlled the Printer's Guild. We're going to talk about the Anglo-American legal yeah. tradition here. And since the Crown controlled the Guild, they controlled what got printed. Uh, as I alluded to, we had the Enlightenment, and people realized this is horrible and dangerous. <laughs> yeah, kind of, when we think about the idea of a free press, it's kind of interesting when you think about the idea that the printing press was really considered horrible and dangerous. Yeah, so so the, the, you know, the rule was changed in the United Kingdom a, a really a long time ago, the early 1700s, in something called the Statute of Anne. And that was where the modern concept of the copyright probably originated. And that concept was basically imported uh, wholly into the Constitution when the, when the framers wrote it. Yeah, and that's one of the things to keep in mind, and it's one of those things as an IP lawyer I actually really enjoy always pointing out to people, is the fact that the right to copyright and patent is actually in the Constitution. It's not an amendment to the Constitution, it's in the Constitution. Yeah, the Bill of Rights was added on later. Yeah. <laughs> the copyright right was always there. <laughs> yeah, and so it's, it's sort of an interesting sort of thing when you think about it, is that this is something that the founding fathers from the very get-go saw as being important, that there be a copyright, there be a right in inventions and discoveries and and works and stuff like that. So That groundwork's helpful to have because it explains some of the weirdness. I was talking to a, another lawyer friend of mine who practices more in labor. Uh, his name's Adam. So Adam, if you're listening, hi. Um, and he basically, his comment was, I've listened to some of your episodes and I've come to the conclusion that IP is, is incoherent and psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> and... You know, from from outside, we're so deep into it, you know, that it's just, it's like, it's, it, I'm so familiar with it, I don't see it that way because I yep. understand all these doctrines now. But when you first start getting into it, it does kind of seem that way. And, and copyright's a classic example of that because we have this institution built on the back of the printing press that we're now applying to motion pictures and, and sound recordings and, and things like that, player pianos and iPods, things that were not in any way in the contemplation yep. of, of the authors of this institution. There's actually, a, there's a book I read a number of years 
years ago. Um, I can't unfortunately remember the author's name called Copyright and Copy Wrong. And what's interesting about it is they actually that contemplates and a lot of the theory it has in conjunction with copyright is how many of the strongest copyright defenders actually learn their trade by trade by being copyright infringers. Well, that's um, a classic tradition. Like when you, I mean, we talked about this in our cloning episode. When you go to learn how to make video games, what do you do? You just clone one that you've seen before. Yeah. And when you're learning how to paint, even in art school, you paint public domain mostly works yeah. um, to learn how to paint and replicate these styles. Yeah, those are museums from people in the Renaissance, so those would definitely be yeah. public domain. Oh, for sure. And then there's, there's always that fine line between homage and ripping off. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, uh, common in movies. How many times do people copy styles or, or cinematography used in film? So this applies to, to fan art in IP because it goes to the heart of what exactly the copyright lets you do or not do. And the copyright itself is really a collection of, we call it a bunch of sticks in the bundle. It's a collection of negative rights on other people, kind yep. of uh, described as exclusive rights. What that really means is nobody else can do it. Yeah, and I think that's the key way to think about it is it's the copyright grants the copyright holder the exclusive right to do certain things. Now, that means that they have the right to do it, but conversely to that, it also means other people do not have the right to do it. It's also important to understand not everything you make is copyrightable. So there's an originality requirement, which doesn't mean it has to be completely original like you came up with it just that it has to come from you and not be something you took from somebody else there's some, also some interesting things in conjunction with originality of exactly who did it come from I mean you guys have probably seen the, the cases the monkey selfie um, some of the issues out there of exactly where the creator of the work becomes a little bit confused um, something that I think is getting to be a little more interesting today uh, in today's day and age is we're starting to get into the concept of AI that may be why talking people, about soon that may be why people confuse copyright with, with plagiarism because if you plagiarize something you can't get a copyright to it because you didn't come up with it. You don't have the originality requirement. Yep. But the mere fact that you've borrowed ideas from somebody else does not mean you've infringed a copyright. Yeah, and it's, and I think one of the things, and it's, it's I think important part for this episode to definitely get across and something for all the listeners to definitely understand attribution and the fact that you attribute that you got something from somewhere does not protect you from copyright infringement. And I think that's a very, very important concept to get across because a lot of people look at it and say, but I said it was theirs. Yeah. And the answer to it is, is that doesn't necessarily protect you from copyright infringement. Simple intellectual exercise. So you photocopy all of Harry Potter... Okay, and then you and you go out in the street and sell it and say, by the way, I didn't write it. Yeah, because okay. J.K. Rowling's name wrote it, and her name <laughs> yeah. is on the cover. Infringement. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so to get a copyright, it has to be original. It has to be creative. The creative threshold in law is extremely low, uh, and it has to be. They call it fixed in a tangible medium of expression, which basically means you have to be able to prove that you have it. So, yeah, the fixed and tangible medium is actually some of the one of the more interesting things when you start talking about things that are sort of uh, borderline copyright and interesting. I know there was a huge issue in conjunction with jazz music and the issue of that jazz music is essentially created on the fly. By definition, that's what jazz music yeah. is supposed to be. If it's not recorded in some form, then whatever you improvised is not really copyrighted. Yeah, and that's a really interesting thing. Now, obviously, if I set it down on a, on a record yeah. know, at that point in time, it would be because now it's fixed in form. But there's some weirdness about that sort of tangibility. Similarly, when we start talking about the idea of like a culture with an oral tradition, and storytelling mm-hmm. oral tradition, what do you have in conjunction with copyrights there where the, the work is never really written down, it's passed on ver- you know, verbally, and particularly because, as we've all played the telephone game, you're going to have changes <laughs> in conjunction with that. 
there's some really interesting sort of components and that tangible medium can create interesting questions. And then the last component is you don't actually have to do anything to have the copyright in the abstract. Uh, I'm looking at a sheet of paper that's got our show notes. If there's a copyright in this, I now own it because I wrote it down. Yep. Uh, and people often, I was watching um, uh, well, a Parks and Rec, and there's a, if you've watched that show, there's a, a Adam Scott plays sort of a nerdy character who invents a game called The Cones of Dunshire. And there's a minor plot point where he, he never does register or get the copyright on it, which, you know, is a, is a mistake uh, because you, he has the copyright to the extent there is one. Once he makes it, he doesn't have to do anything. Yeah. Uh, now, you can register it, you should register it, but uh, I'll so people often come to us and say, how do I get a copyright? I'm like, well, if you made it, you've already got it. Yeah, and that's and it is an important thing to keep in mind. It's actually one of the difficult areas of law is the fact that copyright, because it does attach without registration, it can oftentimes be difficult to figure out whether or not something is copyrighted, and if it is, who owns the copyright in it. And, and interestingly enough, I think IP attorneys love to pick on Hollywood at times because the number of Hollywood plots that involve somebody protecting an unregistered copyright is sort of like, hold on a second, they don't actually have to do anything. You know? So what does a copyright let you do? There's, there's a lot of different things depending on what it is, but for our purposes today, uh, nobody else can make copies of whatever you've copyrighted. Nobody else can, and notice it says make copies, period. That means yeah. even if you just make a copy and it sits in your in your, your office, you violated the, that right. Uh, distribute copies to the public, which would raise questions. When you go to Barnes & Noble and buy a book, didn't they just distribute a copy of somebody else's copyrighted material to you? Where do they get the right? And the answer is a contract. Uh, the right to make derivative works, which we've talked about in the last episode and we'll get into today. And then Another interesting one, the right to publicly display or perform visual or dramatic work. Yep. So if you buy like a screenplay, even if you buy a copy of it, that doesn't necessarily mean you have the right to perform it. Yeah, and th- there's an interesting interplay when you start talking about uh, particularly music and and movies and things like that. And what I oftentimes refer to as sort of temporal works. So these are works that have to exist across time. So a book exists as one object, you know, in a single point in time. Music and and as music as it's heard, not yep. so much on, a, on an LP, but video music games. as it's heard, video games, movies, anything along those lines kind of exist temporally. And you get into some interplays of the fact that there's a lot of different copyrights that play into them. So there's a right to the physical script of a movie. There's the right to the performance of a movie. There's the right to a particular performance of a movie as recorded on videotape. I'm dating myself here. <laughs> um, or de- you know, send via TV and Netflix. Um, or, and there's also a, a, an interesting interplay between music and music called a synchronization right, which is putting music to a moving image. Yeah, we'll probably do a whole episode on that because the, distrib- the, the different copyrights Copyright rights that exist in in music and and audiovisual works are are complicated. I still have to refresh my memory on them because it's such a mess. Um, As applied to fan art, uh, these rights are pretty broad, and some of this is pretty straightforward. So as far as just, you know, I'm going to draw a copy of an existing work, clearly you've made a reproduction. So that's at least a a technical violation, and those things are rampant. I was a, a, a sort of an amateur cartoonist when I was in high school. I can probably still spit out a pretty solid Garfield if I needed to. Every one of those I drew was at least a technically a violation of, of Jim Davis's rights to Garfield because yep. I made a reproduction of his character and, and his, his Now, we're getting a bit art. into character copyright, which I yeah. used to say about the reproduction of Garfield as opposed to reproduction of Garfield in a particular yeah. strip. But I learned to draw Garfield by sitting down with books and just looking at it and then reproducing yep. it. And I used to do the same thing with dragons and magazines and stuff like that. And But there's a practical thing here. How's anybody going to know? 
Yeah. You know, is, is Jim Davis going to come sue a 12-year-old for drawing Garfield? No. These, these people are artists. They're creative types. And, and they understand that this is how they learn to produce this stuff. Yeah. And unless they're extremely heavy-handed, this is probably no harm, no foul. Now, again, I think the thing to keep in mind in conjunction with this, we look at it and say there's probably no harm, no foul, but it's entirely dependent upon yeah. the copyright holder saying, I'm okay with this. So in some sense, there's an implicit contract or there is sort of a contract. Or just a voluntary decision not to enforce yep. under certain circumstances. At the same time, it is a technical violation. And I think that's one of the things to really keep in mind in conjunction with this is when we're talking about a lot of the fan art stuff, we need to focus on what is a technical violation more so than what's a violation that's going to get you in trouble because the technical violation is the interesting point of law. Yeah, there's there's what the law permits and doesn't permit, and there's what makes sense on a business level to enforce or not enforce. And what the law doesn't permit, in my experience, is is much broader than what businesses and content owners ever bother to, to mess with. And that's true under all areas the law. Yeah. I think it's, you know, this has nothing to do specifically with IP. You know, what is permitted underneath labor law is not necessarily what a business is going to do. You know, they're not always towing exactly the line of it. And again, that's why I think it's important to sort of think about this in conjunction with it, that when we're talking about what is a copyright violation, one of these things, we're talking in many respects about what is a technical violation, what is a specific violation of copyright, because that's the interesting question. And sort of in, in old law school terms, it's the black line rule. Um, you know, where is the line that when you cross, it's a violation, when you don't cross it's not recognizing that you may very well cross a line and nobody cares but that's not interesting so Kirk I got an interesting hypothetical for you suppose you're an amateur artist Uh-oh. and you you do a painting that reproduces um, I don't know uh, who's the guy that used to do all the TSR paintings Elmore I think uh, yeah he's one of them if I'm yeah. Yeah, so right. you reproduce one of his paintings and you put it up on the wall in your apartment and it sits there it's not being displayed in public it's your private apartment that's Are fine you, it is because it's, if you have anybody over it's public yeah maybe and we kind of talked about that with like Super Bowl performances. Yeah. But so so you put it up on your in your wall as a practical matter, it's never going to be detected. But then you have a friend over who takes a picture of you sitting on the couch and there's your painting right behind you and tweets out the picture. And that picture goes viral. And the picture goes viral. Yeah, and now we have 30,000 copies of it and you're the latest celebrity because look how good you are at copying artwork. Not only that, when you tweet something out, there's a contract with Twitter and you license them to reproduce the image you sent up and mm-hmm. you represent that you own the IP to it. So now what? We got a mess. Yeah, we, and that's, I think, the, the simple answer in conjunction with the hypothetical is we have a mess. And it, again, I'm going to jump back to law school for a second. This is what a lot of times people refer to as the law school exam problem. Exactly. Yeah. Um, if you take IP law at you know a, a law school anywhere, when you take your exams, they give you problems like this. And yeah. the idea behind it is... Because there's no answer. There's no answer and there's a lot of issues raised. So is it a public display? Yeah, of the a, artwork. Is it a public or is it display? just incidentally captured? Cuz think about it, you take a you take a photograph of a cityscape. How much IP are you capturing in that photo? Yeah. You know, and are you violating all of those copyrights and all the architecture and everything else when you do that? You've also got another issue here, which is the fact that you didn't actually take the selfie. Your friend yeah. did. So Somebody who actually created the artwork that's the, actually the violation here, which is the Twitter image. Um, you know, you you get into these kind so, yeah, of weird who's, issues. Who's the violator? Maybe you as the artist violated by making the copy, but your friend publicly displayed it, not you. And and remember, there were two things about that. One is to make copies and one is to distribute copies to the public. You didn't distribute any copies to the public. Your friend did, and he arguably did so in violation of Twitter's user policies. Yeah, like I said, it's a mess. Um, So there's there's that. So even with something as simple as I'm just going to make my own picture and hang it in my apartment... Here be dragons, as always. <laughs> and th- th- actually, it's a sort of amusing tie-in in conjunction with here there be dragons. And I think that that again is a 
is a good thing to be thinking about with this. What we created here, people look at this and go, yeah, that's a really particular hypothetical. It's a law school exam question, stuff like that. But these kind of things actually happen a lot. So the example would be, and sort of you know, taking your sort of carry-on example, I'm going to put on a TV show and I need to have a particular piece of artwork in the background because it's referenced in the script. How do I get that piece of artwork in the background? Or and, do I not? Or do you do I do not? replace it with something else? And you see this in TV. I was mm-hmm. uh, my wife and I were actually on an episode of uh, the Great Food Truck Race when they were in St. Oh, yeah. Louis a couple of years ago, and uh, they make you sign all this stuff. And anybody who won't sign, they blur your name out because they don't want any argument that they're violating anybody's rights. Now that's more rights of publicity and whatnot. But you see it with T-shirts and stuff too. They blur out yep. academic logos and corporate logos to avoid any implied association. Yeah, I know there's a big thing. There's been thing in Striver for a while because they were, they were you know like you know blurring out logos. And I think they forgot to do it on one episode or something like that or one particular logo there was an issue with. Well, this is a side issue, but I, the whole thing is weird, right? Because, one, I'm not even convinced you have to blur out the logos. Like, the, the people not understand how TV works? Give me a break, especially reality TV. Uh-huh. But by blurring them out, then you have this problem where you create a false association where you forget <laughs> to blur them out even though there is none. Like, yeah. And very frankly, a lot of people can figure out what they are through the blurring, too. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, uh, but going to the more, the perhaps more interesting question, what if I want to draw or paint or otherwise produce art uh, of something that's not a direct reproduction? So the example I, I want to raise is the character Glorfindel from uh, Fellowship of who, the Ring. Who's Glorfindel? So if, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you, you're screaming at your radio, you know exactly who Glorfindel is. But if you're not... Uh, that's a, what I had to ask. A character that's in maybe 10 pages of the book at <laughs> most. Not all that well fleshed out. I think he has yellow hair. Maybe I'm going from memory here, but <laughs> I mean, I've read those books 20 times. This tells you how well fleshed out this character is. Despite that, I couldn't tell you anything about Glorfindel other than he's a heroic elf that saves Frodo at the uh, uh, at the at the river going into Rivendell. So, so you paint Glorfindel. Unless you write Glorfindel down on the sheet of paper, how does anybody know that that's Glorfindel as opposed to any other generic Tolkien-esque elf? Yeah, and, and I think they sort of tying on that thing in conjunction with even saying Tolkien-esque elf. In many respects, a common popular cultural perception of elves is Tolkien-esque elf. So yeah, I guess Tolkien-esque that. isn't even really necessary as a modifier. Like um, most elves are by default Tolkien-esque. Yeah, they have pointy ears, they're taller, and they're haughty. You know, I yep. mean, that's the sort of useful things I think you get into. Yeah, so so there, there's that problem, and and. That raises a couple different legal questions. So one, is Glorfindel copyrighted at all, other than to the extent that the, the literal words on the page appear in the book? Yep. And that, that's the character copyright question. Is there any copyrightability in that character apart from the description yep. of it? And we're definitely going to get into character copyright. Yeah. We've already touched with that in a future episode because that's such a big issue. And the answer but, here is probably no. It's such a minor character. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting, no. But I think the thing that's interesting, and I just want to talk about it, sort of a, a particular case in this area, is they've actually had cases that have made distinctions. And the particular character in this case was Sam Spade, um, who I think most people know as the detective where the idea is that a printed work cannot really sufficiently define a character in the way a visual work can. So when we're talking about a character like Glorfindel, who I presume doesn't actually appear in the movies, I mean, then there may be I a think character. It may be like an in. additional scene, like uh, he's in like the, the council scenes. Yeah, but, but again, it's, he doesn't have he, the same role. They gave that yeah. to Liv Tyler's character in the movies. But even is he that character, you know, in, in the credits and stuff like that? But it's, if we take the idea that he's not, let's just assume he's not in the movie, or there is a character we can come up with that's not in the movie. Um, do we have no visual depiction of the character? 
what's to stop you from creating a visual depiction of the character? Yeah, there's a description of them in words in the book, but I think the average person reading that, I can take two very good, good artists, give them both exactly the same description of what somebody looks at and come with two different people. Yeah, I mean, you could draw Aragorn who looked, and make him look nothing like Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, I mean, for obvious reasons, Viggo Mortensen is a real person. You know, yeah. I mean, that's the, the thing. You have to have an actor portray them. It must be a real person. I can portray something which is not a real person. Um, you also have the issue of the fact, again, Viggo Mortensen's character, you're taking something like a, you know, an elf or something like that they have makeup involved as well so mm-hmm. the makeup has also changed their appearance and made them a particular way and the technical limitations of makeup and, and what do you do with a character like Sauron who if you're not a big Lord of the Rings fan is basically this um, <laughs> this, this this giant uh, evil dude in, in I guess in armor yeah I'd say he's an animated suit of armor in some yeah, respects yeah I don't know if, I'm, if that's what's in the book or if I'm being influenced by the, the films but there's very very little description of the character uh, I mean if you <laughs> it's kind of weird like Lord of the Rings is a bunch of people being menaced by an evil lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> it is like an evil light, two evil lighthouses, technically. <laughs> yeah, but, but there, there, are, there are scenes where I can't take credit for that. And speaking of attribution, I, I saw that joke online at some point and it, it tickled me. Um, but like in, in the books, the character has virtually no definition whatsoever other than he is evil and he made a ring. You could draw or paint all kinds of depictions of what this character might have looked like or been like yep. in, in, in corporeal form. And you know everybody who sees it will probably know what it is is from context, but although that character is very important to the story, he's not that well defined. I'm going to actually give you a really good example. I think I'm going to pick one that's public domain just as what it is. What does Hamlet's father look like? I mean, he appears only as a ghost. We know he's a king of Denmark. You know, that's about it. So presumably he has a crown in his appearance as a ghost or as not as a ghost. But what on earth does he look like? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with, with dramatic works is these characters are rarely defined beyond their actions on the stage. Yeah, and so when you're talking about, you know, and again, sort of beyond that, you know, as to what it is, if we're reading Shakespearean work, I mean, at least we have a play in that case, but if we're just reading a Shakespearean work, how do we define what this character looks like, who it is? You know, we really have no idea. We have very little explanation as to what they are. So thought exercise, what color is Juliet's hair? <laughs> yeah, it's a great example. I don't think it's I just actually... assume it's blonde. I have no idea why. I guess because that's what I've seen when I've seen plays it's of probably it. some famous play in conjunction with it. Now, I think the, the other thing you definitely get into, um, you know, in conjunction with that is, where is Romeo and Juliet supposed to be placed? And at least, you know, I think in Shakespearean plays, you have a pretty much clear setting of it's probably Italy, medieval. Italy, it? well. Genoa? Or? It's Europe. I mean, yeah. I think that's the, the thing we get into. Well, you Montague know, and Capulet. I mean, you can kind of geographically yeah. place the surnames, but... But, you know, they could also be Spanish, for that matter, you know? You're I mean? right, it could. It could. Um, and so I think that's one of those where, you know, you, you get into these kind of issues that a lot of these things, when we when we think about depictions, a lot of times the way we think things being depicted is because that's the way we first saw them depicted. It's not because necessarily the way they're actually described. I mean, to take a sort of really extreme example, and I think a very good one, I'm not sure that the vast majority of people in the Bible are described. Not in really. any sufficient detail to be able to know what they look like, the way we've based their appearances is based simply upon period. You know what we expect people in the period to be wearing, what we expect them to be looking like. But we have no indication of their race. We have no indication necessarily of particularly defining features. In some cases, there may be something particularly defined, but that's it. Now we're talking about a literary work that's you know thousands of years old. And yet we really have – everything we have is that literary work is not defining it. It's all the work that comes afterwards which is giving us the appearance. Well, let's assume that there is a copyright that subsists and whatever we want to draw. What are our other defenses for why what we're doing is not copyright infringement? And I think the, the clearest one would be that it's a fair use. Yep. And I think in many respects it's a transformative fair use. And yeah, I touched on this clear. in the last episode. And the idea of transformative fair use is that we've moved it so far beyond its originalist to be something essentially entirely new. And the fact that it, it – 
transformative fair use is weird because a lot of times when I think about it, transformative fair use is almost saying it's no longer a derivative work. But pretty much, right? Because the derivative work involves the concept of you're transforming it somehow. But if you transform it enough, well, not now it's just something that's wholly new. Yeah, it's not really and derivative work anymore. We're going to cover fair use on the Urban Legend episode too, but fair use is not a well-defined doctrine, which is to say it's not defined at all. Well, it's a well-defined doctrine. Its application yeah, is not well-defined. Probably a better way to say it. Um, so if you go look it up, um, if you're curious, I think it's um, just Google 17 USC 107. That is where the fair use doctrine is codified. And you will, and what you see it say, basically, is here's the things you think about to determine whether it's fair use. Nowhere does it say fair use means X. Yeah. Um, the closest it gets is it says for certain purposes, something may be fair use. And they list criticism, commentary, reporting, and teaching. Yep. And in popular perception, fair use boils down to commercial or not. I can't tell you how many times people say, but I'm not selling it. I'm not making any money, so how is it copyright infringement? That is not the standard. Yeah. It's part of the standard, but it's not the it's whole standard. It's one of four criteria, and that's the thing. You're saying 25% of what it is at best is well, commercial, non-commercial. It's a false dichotomy too, right? I mean, news reporting is a commercial activity. Most of our news reporting arms are for profit. Yeah. You know, movie critics are giving criticism for profit. Yeah. And commercial doesn't even mean for profit. No. It's simply, it can it's in commercial, in commerce. in commerce. You know, you can have a not-for-profit, which is a commercial entity. So what they're going to look at is, the, they call it the purpose and character of your use. So in this case, you're making it, if you're going to hang it in your room, the purpose and character is, I'm practicing learning how to do art. That's education. Education. Right? Um, the nature of the copyrighted works, we're going to look at, it's a literary work compared to what you made is a work of visual art or graphic art. So there's the transformative aspect there. Uh, the third factor they look at is how much of the original work you have used. So in the Glorfindel case, you've taken one character that appears in five pages of, of an epic saga. Yeah, pretty <laughs> minimal. Pages, yeah. Pretty minimal. <laughs> and then the effect of the use upon the potential market for the copyrighted work, you know, your your drawing is probably not going to seriously diminish the, the appetite for Lord of the Rings. Interestingly enough, that's where you get into some of the sort of weird questions is this effect on the market is what really is the market of the work? And in sort of modern world, I think this is something worth just thinking about. I don't think we're going to go into any detail here. Oftentimes, licensing is the value here. We know that from Star Wars. You know, mm -hmm. We know from a, a number of properties. You can say the market for the work of a movie is the sale of the movie, but in many respects, the sale is really the toys associated with the movie. What really is the market of the work when we're talking about an individual character and an appearance of it? Is your creation of a you know drawing of Glorfindel is that the market for the book, The Lord of the Rings, or is it the market for artworks of Glorfindel? Or the movie, for that matter. Yep. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna pick something, say there's a scene that like a movies movies often kind of fast forward and save some money by having a character just in the movie narratively describe something that wasn't actually shown because it would cost too much to film. Well, what if you go ahead and draw that scene? Is it based on the movie or is it based on the underlying book? Yeah, or is it simply a Santa Fair and the fact that you yeah. drew a large medieval battle? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, there are other arguments too. Uh, you can argue an implied license, which is uh, I, I should tell you these de these are defenses, which means yep. and we always often say legal defenses are the, the last refuge of the cornered scoundrel, right? You, <laughs> you have no no valid argument at this point that you're not infringing, and you're just saying I shouldn't be held responsible for it. So yep. you, if if your leading argument in an infringement defense is uh, fair use, then you're already up against it. The, the, a lot of times, you know, you get the joke of the old attorneys of you know I didn't do it, and you can't prove it. Even if I did, you can't prove it. Yep. Um, this is not even those. This is saying, I did it, but it's okay. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so fair use falls into that category. Implied licenses like that. Uh, so a good example of implied licenses, you know, somebody posts something on um, uh, like, um, I don't know, like a, like like, like a, the November novel writing month, the Nano Remo. You ever done yeah. that where you try to spit out a novel in one month? I've started that every year. I've never gotten <laughs> never past day one. Uh, but, you know, you, you publish your content in, in, a, in like a, a workshop environment. You're impliedly authorizing people to 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 quote it yeah. to dissect it to break it down to maybe even edit it i mean there's an implied license to do that there based on the context yeah. of of the use you can also obviously have a copyright holder who would put something out and say hey you know i've got my book rewrite the ending i yeah. want to have a fan contest to rewrite the ending there's an implied license to that even if they don't necessarily say it and then probably the the easiest way is to find if, if the original content owner has some kind of fan fiction policy like we yep. talked about paramount does for star trek and just stick within the bounds of that then it's easier to say well look i didn't infringe anything this is what they said i could do and yeah. it kind of goes back to a license and, and a lot of times in many respects i think a lot of those licenses are to deal with exactly the fact that what is fair use is so confused so a lot of times and i think that's also a little bit where the commercial non-commercial dichotomy comes in a lot of those licenses specifically make the commercial non-commercial yeah. dichotomy yeah, you can do all this stuff but don't don't start making money off of it yeah and and you know that's i think about where that comes into fair use recognizing that that really is somebody contracting outside of fair use but based upon what they think fair use principles may allow or not allow all right, well, that's it for now. Uh, next time, we're going to talk about Internet Urban Legends. We're going to go over uh, what IP, if any, subsists in these organic urban legends. Uh, this is the, the continuing story problem where person A kind of starts something and person B picks it up and it just snowballs Yeah, from the there. natural creation where the idea is something that effectively becomes sort of well-known but is created, for lack of a better term, by committee. And then uh, we're also going to, on a, on a unrelated but but you know nominally similar note, dispel uh, internet urban legends uh, about the law and IP specifically. And we're not going to dispel all of them because there's way too oh, many. Oh, there are so many. Okay, so if you have a question, you can ask us on Twitter at LGGpod. You can email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. Search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. If you like what you hear, give us a review. It helps other people find us. There's the music. It's time to go. So thank you once again to the official LGG Cantina Band, Lorem Ipsum and the Scriveners. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. Ah!